Isn't that beautiful? I told Erin she's our token woman up here today. I would ask that you take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start with the first verse and go through the 13th verses. To the 13th verse. As you know, today is the third Sunday of Lent. It's the heart of Lent now, kind of usually in in, uh, most of the world. It's the heart of winter and the cold and and darkness of the winter season. We have a little different experience of that. But it is, in a spiritual sense, very much the the winter of uh, the Christian year in which we look at what sin does. And sin so takes away the light and and causes us to experience sorrow that is so unnecessary. That's a part, I think, that, that hurts me the most as a pastor, is when I see people experience unnecessary pain. Uh, there's enough pain in life uh, that is not of our doing. It happens to us. But then there's unnecessary pain that happened because of the choices that we make. And that's the, the deeper sorrow. And... Uh, as we look at what produces that kind of pain, we're in the midst of the season of, of that. And we take 40 days out of the year uh, to explore that because to understand why Jesus came, you have to understand the depth of the sorrow and why he was willing to go through such a deep passion and take uh, the pain upon himself in order to set us free. And you can't really understand Good Friday or the crucifixion. And then the great victory of resurrection, the death of death, as we sang in one of the songs, Uh, the end of that great nemesis of humanity, uh, that we will live forever because he lives. And it's in that preparation that we are now in the depth of the season of Lent. There's a new story that has been making the rounds of a newly discovered church in Turkey. I don't know if you saw the articles on it along with the fact that it's perhaps the oldest church that we've ever found, including some of the house churches that we've uncovered before. It is in a deep underground and the largest of the underground cities that we have in the world. The media is highlighting that they found some never-before-seen frescoes uh, that are giving us uh, implications of the, of the understanding of the early church. And, and one of them portrays Jesus with bad souls being killed is the way they describe it, or what we would call in theological terms, Judgment Day. Some are acting, of course, as though this is something unusual, that the early church uh, did not uh, understand it that way, or at least we didn't understand that they understood it that way. But it's not. Uh, This has always been a part of the Christian theology. Uh, For example, this is the front wall of the Sistine Chapel, uh, that beautiful a place in the Vatican where uh, popes are voted on and popes are elected. It's titled, uh, this wall is titled The Last Judgment, and it portrays the ultimate consequence of earthly choices. For obvious reasons, uh, we as Christians enjoy Easter far more than we enjoy Lent, and Eastertide is seven weeks long, a week of weeks, because we just want to celebrate Easter and what has happened there. Uh, We very naturally, even as Christians, shy away from and are sometimes even embarrassed about the judgment of God. Yet it is one and the same thing, Easter and Lent. Forgiveness would not matter if there was nothing to be forgiven for. 
or if our moral choices did not have real consequences for good or for ill, then life would take on a, a kind of chaotic, meaningless sense. Another way of saying it is that God is not playing a shell game. Goodness, forgiveness, love, they're very real. It's a real thing to be loved and to love someone. And it is a very real thing for evil and vengeance and hatred to be expressed. And yes, in the next realm, it is true that those who hate are not going to be allowed to be near those who love, for God will not allow the forgiven ones to be destroyed anymore, will be under the protection of the eternal one. And if there's anything that uh, this concept of heaven is, it's God's care for his people. And no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death. All the former things have passed away. It's interesting to me as we even look at modern culture and uh, popular culture, TVs, movies, even video games, uh, we recognize that there is this struggle between good and evil, between the bad guys and the good guys. It's not just a tension that people have put into the plot to make it a, a more interesting drama. It's basic to humanity. We all feel it. We know what it is to do good, to love, and we know what it is to have vengeance, hold the grudge, and to hate. And we see it when we see it in another person. We, we recognize that that is something that is destructive to humanity. It's deep within our moral universe, the way God created the world, just as he created it with, with physical laws and laws of nature. He created it with a moral law and a reality to those choices. And those choices that we make matter. They matter deeply, not just to the person in that moment, but to humanity as a whole as we live and create this, this world of human interaction. And if we choose choices that harm others in any way, then we are responsible for the outcome of those choices and the consequences of those choices. Last week we talked about modern slavery and the imprisoned ones, those who are being held by evil just for immoral profit, obscene profit, just to make money, lives being destroyed and, and imprisoned in a whole variety of ways. And we recognize that those those powerless ones in our midst, most often the young, need to be freed. They need to be protected. We need to, to not be a part of a system that would reinforce that kind of, of greed. And it's not that, that we want to set these prisoners free because it's our hobby as Christians. Like some people play golf and some people surf and we set prisoners free. No, it's, it's endemic to humanity to be human is to love in such a way that you love those who, who can give you nothing back. They're powerless. But we're going to stand with them. We're going to be with them. We're going to walk with them into freedom. And it's that mission that is the mission of the church, the great commission to go into all the world, to set the prisoners free, to allow those who, are, who do not experience God to experience God and experience his love and his care. We are, in fact, Christ's body continuing his ministry in this world. 
So we want to explore uh, this uncomfortable reality as we're in the heart of Lent of what, what are the temptations that come upon us that cause us not to be the type of people who make God's kingdom come to earth and his will being done here. So let's go to 1 Corinthians. And it's a, it's a study of history. It's an application of history. So we'll, we'll go back a little bit into the, into the historic events that uh, Paul is mentioning here as he uses illustration in talking to his people. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, the manna, and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things, as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by the snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I'll keep that open before you and let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that uh, this dark side, this difficult, destructive side of humanity, you're not silent about. You, you give us examples. You teach us what happens and, and what the result is or the consequence of those kinds of choices. You help us know in advance. You give us the answers to the test. And yet, Father, there's something in each of us that, that is drawn to the evil. Talk to us. Be with us. Change us. Transform us. Help us be your people. And of course, we'll give you praise. Amen. To understand these words, of course, they're historically based and they're based on the history of Israel. And so we want to go back and understand the Exodus as a whole and its symbol for the spiritual journey. When Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt, we're told that God guided them literally with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The cool protection of the heat of the day with a cloud and the culminating, illuminating warmth of the fire in the night. 
Thus the cloud and the fire become symbols. All the way through scriptures, we see it when the temple is built and the cloud descends and the glory of the Lord, which means his presence is in the temple as they prepared a place for him to come. We see it in the fire of the burning bush. We see it in the fire of the tongues on the day of Pentecost when God's presence came and illuminated and gave them the Holy Spirit so that they would have this wonderful guidance of God. All the way through, we have this cloud and pillar of fire being the symbols of his presence. And so, just as the Israelites were guided by God, so also are we as we're guided by the Holy Spirit's protective, illuminating fire and cloud. He is with us today. He is with you every day. He goes with us as his people. Now that being true, that we are baptized to leave behind the slavery of our own Egypts and walk with God into the new promised land that he has for us, he gives us the sacrament of manna, a symbol of his own body as bread. He gives us the spiritual drink from the rock, one of the beautiful moments in which Christ sacramentally is present and goes with them, we said. Uh, there is some art that allows uh, this picture of the rock actually going with them. I don't think that's the picture of it, but Christ goes with them and he's present in the rocks, wherever the rocks might be. However, when they got to the promised land, most of them, in fact, experienced not trust in God, but fear of the giants of the land. And we're told a very interesting phrase. It says, in our own sight, we felt like grasshoppers. Now, when you lose sight of God and you focus on yourself and what you can do, you feel like grasshoppers in the presence of giants because the troubles of the world seem so overwhelmingly present and that we forget the presence of God and his care for us and his allowing us to take the promised land. And so as we walk with God, we often in that moment become uncomfortable with the world as we see it. And we start to lose trust and to despair that we're not able to be the people in this new and changing and difficult world in which we live. When we do that, then, and, and we abandon God and choose that God can't do anything, then we wander in this desert of a world. And we wander till we die. And as the, the story says, until our bodies are scattered in the wilderness. So understanding that, that the Exodus itself is a rescue from slavery into the promised land. It's the story of every one of our lives as we go from that enslaved to, enslavement to sin in whatever way that's true to being free to follow God and his direct guidance. Paul reminds us in the midst of this that there are four types of temptations. When we talked about the temptations of Jesus, we recognize that this, there's this uh, money, sex, and power kind of thing that we saw there when we looked at it a little differently a couple of weeks ago, he gives us some, some different ones here. Uh, temptations that happened in uh, the journey to the promised land. And uh, one of the things that, of course, he says at the end, and is so important to understand about temptation, is that what seems most private is actually most common. I said that several times a couple of weeks ago. I want to say it again, that the things you're most ashamed of 
are actually the most common things that everybody experiences. Once we recognize that fact and realize that we're in this together, we can then be less uh, uh, secretive and more open about the journey that we're traveling. For we're all on the same journey. Uh, we have different uh, trigger points, as I said a couple of weeks ago, in which different things in that journey trigger different people at different times, but they're common experiences. So what are the four kind of common experiences that, that Paul points out? Well, the first, he says, is that some of us will become idolaters. Now, the reminder here is that the people in the wilderness, as they'd just gone through the water, just gotten free from slavery, and Moses is on the mountain, they feel he's with God too much, not enough with them. They begin to lose trust in Moses and in Moses' God, and so they decide that they're going to create Baal. Baal is the ancient bull of the ancient world, the god of fertility and power and wealth as your crops produce and you become a wealthy human being. Now, it's interesting, as I've talked with people, I often uh, realize we misunderstand the ancient mind. The ancient mind isn't much different from our mind. It's not that they thought that statue would come to life and somehow give them power and they're not worshiping the statue. They are, in fact, worshiping the power the statue represents. It's not unlike the Bull of Wall Street, in which we think of the power of commerce to do something within our lives and within our own, own well-being. We're not worshiping the bull. We don't, we don't uh, do that, and neither did the ancient world. It wasn't the statue itself, but it was the focal point of the people. They focus not on God, but on this statue as the focal point of their hope, their their trust, that they think that that the Wall Street uh, securities and investments will see us through the future, when in fact it won't. There's no way that any human power can see us through anything. Uh, we trust in God because God is the God of the living. He's the God of the living now and the God of the living eternally. And we place our trust in him because this world can do nothing to us. For we are free to live with him now or in his presence eternally. And so we put our, our trust in him. So let's ask ourselves this question. And it should be a question, in fact, that we ask not just during Lent, but quite regularly. Uh, on what are my eyes focused? What, what do we see as prosperity? How do we define success? What's a good life? How do we define that? Uh, and depending on how you answer that, what do we give worth to? What do we really worship? What is most important to us? And how do we sacrifice to the one that we give worth to? For we always sacrifice. So what are you sacrificing to? What are you giving your life to? Now that's the first common temptation that we all have. The second is that some of them committed sexual immorality. And of course, as we're told, a sexually transmitted disease then came upon the group. 
and 23,000 of them died at one time. The incident that is being referring to here is in Numbers 25, and it tells of some of the Israelite men who engaged in sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes of Baal, of the bull god. When we were in Corinth uh, a few years ago with the church trip and we're standing among the ruins of the town center, you look up on the mountain and there is, are the ruins of the Temple of Diana. Now the Temple of Diana is the same kind of ritualistic uh, prostitution as you have in the Temple of Baal. And we were talking about how as you lived there and you looked up on that hill, how you would wonder what's going on there, what are they doing there, and you're enticed by uh, the sexual immorality of the temple prostitution. And uh, it's a, 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 a seductive kind of thing when you think, what are those people doing? And what are they experiencing that I am not? Today, our temples of sexual immorality are, are most often digital. Uh, we've kind of left behind even the magazines. The Playboy Mansion is going to be sold. That's a, a sign of the times. It's no longer in, in magazines that... Uh, uh, sexual morality comes, but more often digital. And the problem with all morality is that since it is fake, since it's not real, it becomes an unsatisfying lust that consumes the person. And we move deeper and deeper then into addiction and the study of addiction and sexual addiction is very, very uh, predictable. And you move from the digital world to the dark corners of your city. It happens in every city and in every nation. So again, let's ask ourselves the question, how do I keep myself from the sexual immorality that some people do? How do I flee from temptation? How do I keep this temptation fatigue, as we talked about a few weeks ago, from, from finally getting to me? How do we flee from it? The third temptation, which is common to all of us, Paul says, is to test Christ, to put him to the test, to see if he'll do what we want, or to not trust in him and to test maybe there's another way. And we get into, of course, the very first of the temptations where the serpent came and tempted Eve and Adam in the garden, and they chose I, I'm no longer going to trust what God says is the good life, the life of Eden. I'm going to choose what the serpent says is the better life, a life of my own choosing rather than God's. And we have this, this replacement of God with the self and what the self wants and the desires of the self, the longings of the self and all the different ways that it might come. This again is, is found in Numbers chapter 21 where they don't trust in God and uh, there's this place where they start longing for slavery. That's a fascinating thing. I've seen it over and over in addiction where people will be free from it and then they'll have a euphoric memory of only the good of the addiction and they long for the addiction once more and will often succumb to it. The result is a plague. It's a plague of serpentine destruction. And until they face it and say, this is what is taking me, and they put it on the pole as Christ was on the cross, uh, 
that it, we're not free to get free from it. And of course, that's the first step of the 12-step program, that I'm powerless over this force unless a greater power, Christ on the cross, uh, can save me. How often in this spiritual journey that you and I share, uh, do we look at others and we see them living in slavery to something or to someone, their own Egypt, and we actually begin to long for their life and how they're living rather than the life of Christ. It's a serpentine seduction, not unlike ease and not unlike these in the wilderness who did not trust God's leadership in their life. They put God to the test. It's an intoxicating nectar that the world tries to offer uh, to us as an alternative to loving God and loving others. And it's something that we're all susceptible to because of not only curiosity that kills us, but uh, the longing of, of evil within each of us. So again, let's ask ourselves the simple question. Do I test God by longing for that which is not in his garden? Do I test God by longing for that which is not in his Edenic paradise? Do I listen to these serpentine seductions of our culture and of our world? And last, some of us grumble against God and against leaders. Uh, here the incident occurred when the Israelites grumbled against Moses' leadership and how he was leading the people of God. And if he had not taken the incense from the temple, which was the presence of God amongst the people, that's what the incense stood for, and walked among the people, we're told that a plague that had fallen them would have in fact wiped out all of them because this is one of the most devastating things to do is to grumble against the very one who loves you and who cares for you. It's a, it's a difficult thing in, in human beings because some of us are more naturally grumblers than others, but criticizing, being constantly unhappy, uh, being uh, upset about the way God is doing my life, is something that is very easy for all of us. And at, at moments in time, uh, almost, almost as though we can't help but uh, do that kind of thing. It takes away then the blessing of joy, of trusting in God, and of walking in God uh, with him in his ways. I once had a person, she was not in this church, but I once had a person who told me that she had the gift of criticism. And she was, of course, kind of only halfway joking. She, she was well-developed gift. I have to agree with her. But it's interesting as I, as I looked at her, when she said that, I started thinking about that, that she was the most unhappy Christian I think I've, I've ever known. And I've known a lot of sorrowful Christians, uh, depressed Christians, but not truly unhappy uh, Christians. And I would agree that she had an unusual ability to just be critical and everything about her life and God and everyone else um, had overtaken her life. So again, does that define us? Do we, we, we all, these are common temptations, we all have it to some extent. Do we grumble and criticize God and, and God's leaders, God's people? Uh, do, we, do we look for what's wrong uh, with God and with his people? 
or, or do we look for what God is doing? Are we against other Christians or even other churches? And if so why in the world would we be speaking against the people of God who have a different flavor to their theology? What, what and why would we do that? Now Paul ends where we talked two weeks ago uh, with this reminding us that God will provide a way of escape for us and we are to flee from temptation so that we don't get temp temptation fatigue and fall for the very things that we've been standing up to. So this morning as we go to God in prayer, uh, I would encourage us to make honest assessment just as we've done throughout the, our study this morning and make an awareness that most of them, Paul says, had to wander in the wilderness until they died because they fell to these kinds of temptations when in fact God wants great victory in the promised land of God where we are ministered to by angels as Jesus experienced it. Let's spend time with God.